Have you ever wondered how successful architecture, engineering, and construction companies scale their business? Or have you ever wanted guidance on how to get more growth, wealth, and freedom from your AEC company? Well, then you're in luck. Hi, I'm Will Forat. And I'm Justin Nagel, and we're your podcast hosts. We interview successful AEC business leaders to learn how they use people, process, and technology to scale their businesses. So sit back and get ready to learn from the industry's best. This is Building Scale. Hey listeners, it's Will here. Our mission is to help the AEC industry protect itself by making technology easy. If you've ever listened to our show, then you know that the three pillars of scaling a business are people, process, and technology. So if you suspect technology is your weak link, then book a call with us to see where we can help maximize your company's IT and cybersecurity strategy. Just go to buildingscale.net slash help. Today's guest is Ryan Casper. Ryan is the CEO of Conduit Security. He is a former FBI cyber agent and engineering team lead at Palantir Technologies. Most recently, he ran a cybersecurity consultancy serving banks and credit unions, but he got very tired of criminals successfully stealing money via wire fraud and had to do something about it, and poof, conduit was born. Wire fraud is commonly considered a cybersecurity problem, but really it's more of a financial controls problem, which we're going to talk about. Uh, so conduit uh, security solves wire fraud with a SaaS-based workflow automation solution that helps finance teams prevent fraud while allowing them to move at speeds uh, of business. Uh, as many of our listeners already know, we talk about construction industry and how it's a massive tar- target when it comes to cybercrime, specifically because all the money that's moving around. And this obviously falls right back into how wire fraud, again, another huge target for criminals. And uh, one not so fun fact is over $2.4 billion was reported stolen in 2021, but the real amount is probably significantly higher than that, uh, unfortunately. Uh, and with all that said, <laughs> Ryan, welcome to the show. Thank you. Thanks for having me. Yeah, I love. So I have a criminal justice degree that I use zero. So I love <laughs> that you were in the FBI. So that's all. That's super cool to me. So tell us about your origin story, how that all happened, and then how you got into to building out conduit. Sure. Yeah, the FBI. You know, probably uh, like many of the people in my generation, so nine eleven was a pretty big event for for everyone and really drove me into want to do something to serve my country, serve my community, and had this appeal to the Intel community. And I was very fortunate in the sense that when I was coming out of school, I had a computer science math background. There was a pretty big emphasis on the Bureau to hire people with engineering, computer technical skills. It had historically been, you know, police officers, law enforcement, or yeah, law enforcement, military, accountants, lawyers had been, you know, their their typical uh, recruiting pool. And so I was able to get in at a relatively young age compared to most agents. And so I went into the academy after my, I got my master's degree in computer science in 06. And it was very interesting for me having that background, technical background. I went into the bureau and got assigned to an organized crime squad uh, to start with. So I was doing kind of traditional, you know, think racketeering influence, corrupt organizations type investigations, uh, which was a fantastic experience because learned a lot about running informants rules of evidence, presenting at trial, which really served me well later when I transitioned into uh, the cyber role. Um, I was able to use more of my technical skill set, but also the skills that I learned as a criminal investigator to put these two together. And so it's really rewarding to both be able to do 
the tech side of stuff and look at, you know, IPs and forensic analysis, as well as handle an informant to help you lead you down to, to additional things in your case as well. So super rewarding has some pretty cool cases. Uh, one of them culminated in, I think one of the first international arrests where the Bureau was involved overseas, mm -hmm. um, very, very big intrusion case there. Um, and then that, you know, that, that squad went on and did some very uh, incredible work up in, in New York city. So it was a really, really cool experience and gave me this interesting background of the enjoyment of the law enforcement investigative side with the technical skill set too. So it was a really, um, really, really, really valuable, interesting experience that served me well throughout my career. That's cool. So then tell us about how you came to, to start a wire fraud business. <laughs> well, yeah, I mean, so, so, you know, you said after the Bureau went to Palantir, worked in their law enforcement engineering team, and then was at a cyber consultancy for a while. And one of the top calls that I got from friends and family and coworkers was always around this wire fraud problem. And the conversation typically started the same way, which was, hey, Ryan, you're a computer guy, help me, I've been hacked. And so we go through, you know, what happened and inevitably, right, from like kind of the, the tech side of things, it's very rarely a true hack computer intrusion. It's social engineering, somebody got tricked. And what is so devastating is you work with these victims and first of all, the ability to recoup the money um, to, to make cyber insurance work, right? It's, there's all these different rules around cyber insurance that generally cover intrusions pretty well, but social engineering is a different bucket of, of coverage that tends to be lower or, or not there for many people. And then the other side is just the shame and the guilt. You feel so bad because when you, you go back and people, I mean, first of all, a lot of times there is some investigative process where you have to at least consider if this is an inside job. And so there's an element of like, am I in trouble? Do people think that I was in on this? Am I committing crimes? And then just the shame of after the fact when even if no one says it, you feel as a victim so foolish. How could I fall for this? Why did I let somebody do this? And after running through so many of these and, and just looking out at, you know, help, help me help me solve this problem, there's really nothing in the marketplace that I felt was really helping the finance people uh, prevent them from making these kinds of mistakes. You know, there's like a lot of tech solutions out there and they, you know, some interesting things out there that are great. But when it came to helping these people prevent them from causing the problem, it ends up looking a lot like, you know, awareness, training, and policy procedure. And inevitably, all the victims I work with had a policy in place. The policy didn't work or it wasn't followed. And they weren't really practical because business has to move quickly. Deals have to get done. And it's easy to sit up in my ivory tower and say, follow this process every time and be careful. But in practice, you're resource constrained. Deals have to get done. People aren't in the office. This is how business actually happens. And there was no solution that I think was really, you know, uh, respectful of that and said, listen, we've got to both be secure, but also let people get their business done. And just saying, do it the right way. Don't make a mistake is nice to say, but in practice, it's not going to work. Yeah, we often say that IT is for pr productivity and cybersecurity is for stopping that. <laughs> you know, like they have different goals, right? Like I want to yeah. keep you safe in cyber. But IT, I want to make things as easy as possible for you to yeah. keep things rolling. So it is finding that balance. Well, yeah, we, I mean, I feel like security and convenience run completely at odds with each other, right? And so, you know, back in the day, you used to show up with a check for your closings, right? Very, well, of course, now checks a little bit different. But, but when I physically hand you a check, the likelihood of wire fraud is effectively zero. However, the convenience factor is really inconvenient. And so it is super easy to fire off an email put instructions to how everybody communicates, which is great, but it's also very, very insecure. And so it's finding this balance, like you said, between IT and cybersecurity is basically the, 
how much convenience do I want? How much security do I want? And where do I land on that spectrum? You mentioned a lot about social engineering. Why does it work? How are people getting tricked so often? A few different factors. I mean, I think one is volume, right? So because people are doing this a lot, it becomes sort of, you know, a, a rote process. So the example we typically give is, you know, there is some fraud here around uh, real estate transactions, people buying homes, right? And this happens with great frequency. However, people that are aware of it is like, you're going to buy how many homes in your lifetime, right? I mean, we're not, we're not doing dozens a week, right? So you're probably going to be pretty heightened. You're going to be a little bit nervous. The likelihood of you being socially injured there still exists, but you're going to be this heightened sense of attention you're paying to it. Now, conversely, if you're a title company or a realtor and you're closing on homes several times a week, all of a sudden that, that pain that you feel today doing it goes away and it becomes a repeat thing. So it becomes all of a sudden very natural where you don't have the same heightened sense of, of caution. And, you know, kind of the, I mean, I guess the joke we tell around like social engineering training, a very good example of, of the kind of practical application of these things is that we frequently send out social engineering training that says things like, hey, uh, you know, don't click links, be aware of this, you know, attachments. And most people's job is basically clicking links and opening attachments and emails. That's what I do. And so I, I take this training and I say, thank you, click accept. And then I do have to go and open spreadsheets to do work. I do need to click links to read things about websites, right? So it's hard to, to balance those those two. The re re repetition and the fact that it becomes natural is number one. The second part is because of the, the kind of security convenience matrix, uh, there's urgency in a lot of these on these transactions. And so the bad guys are able to create ruses or situations that, first of all, feel very realistic to you because this is how deals typically get done. And unfortunately, sometimes it is that the instructions are coming in at the 11th hour or there is a change or my main point of contact is on vacation out for summer. And I think you you take those are the normal situations. And then you take the rise of remote work. It is all of a sudden very common to not have people in the office. You have to call them on different numbers. And with recent bank shutdowns, it's now become much more common or reasonable to suspect that people are changing banking relationships because maybe their bank went under or people are diversifying those banking relationships for that reason. And so bad guys are able to take what is going on in the world and apply it. And with you know the, the business email compromise side of this, if they have a little bit of inside information, and this could be from compromised email or it could be from press releases that are available publicly, they can apply that knowledge and say, I know that if I can get someone to act in a, in a way a little bit off their policy, this is going to help. And a big component of, of social being effective is that people generally want to be helpful, right? You're talking to people that are in service type roles and organizations. And the last thing you want to do is hold up a deal so that it costs the business money. It costs them an opportunity. It creates a problem for project people down the road. And so they play off of the desire for you to be helpful and to do good for your business to get you to do something that you normally wouldn't do because of policy or, or you not th necessarily thinking clearly because you just suspect a trusting relationship with someone where it's someone trying to violate that trust. So I want to clarify something because you talked about business email compromise. Okay. It's <clears throat> not necessarily your company. So wh whoever the listener is, right? Listening to this and reflecting on their own company going that their own emails are compromised. It's, it's someone else, right? Can you talk a little bit about what you're talking about there? Like whose email is compromised and, and kind of talk through the, what that situation looks like? Yeah. Uh, so, you know, I think like, we open to justice, like, you know, we don't really consider this as much a cyber problem as we do a controls problem because by and large, the victim of the wire fraud 
rarely has the actual compromised account if there even is a compromised account at all. Pretty commonly is that the victim's IT is totally secure. They can spend unlimited money and unlimited time securing their systems. However, if your counterpart has a compromised email, that email is going to pass any kind of filter spam check, right? Because it's a legitimate account. Someone else has control of it. It's it's an ongoing conversation you've had with this person. So those tools and things aren't really set up to work that way. They just can't. And so those emails come in, they are completely legitimate because it's the real account, but they've just changed some information on the invoice. They've changed the wire instructions in an email body. And so in many cases, the, you know, again, it was kind of when I got called in to do incident response, you go into the to the victim company. And the first thing they do is they're calling their MSP. They're freaking out. Do we have an email compromise? Lock it down, change passwords, right? There is this big panic. And 99% of the time they do this full analysis. Hey, our email's fine. No one was compromised. There's no issue. It wasn't a tech problem. It was a social engineering problem. The finance person paid somebody that they weren't supposed to pay because of a compromise over here. And what's unique about you know, this crime and, and insurance and everything else is that even though there is a compromise on the other party's side, the person hitting thin is liable for that money. And they're the ones that have to recoup it. So even if the other party was completely negligent in their cybersecurity, they don't have any exposure from an insurance or liability standpoint. It's still on the person that sent it, which is why there's so much uh, attention paid from banks or else to validate those instructions before sending the money out. Does okay. that mean that, like, you know, I, I made a question is, do lawsuits occur in these cases where it's like, I sent my wire fraud the wrong place and that is on me, but you were compromised, like, and we were in an agreement together. Is there any, like, legality where I have, I mean, I obviously can sue anybody for anything, like, that's a thing, yeah. but, like, is there legitimate, like, hey, like, I'm going to try to recoup some of these losses because I'm, I know I'm out of the money. The money's gone. Like, that's right. gone, so how can I recoup some of these losses? Uh, I, you know, I... So yes, people do this all the time. I mean, you know, the, the strategy, frankly, is to kind of misbehave if this happens to you, if, if this is the route you want to go, right? And so it's like, can I go out and get pennies on the dollar from all of these different parties, right? That say, hey, mm-hmm. I think you're kind of liable here and this and that. And, and can we, you know, it's effectively like a negotiation tactic to try and recoup some of this. But I mean, there have been, you know, lawsuits against I me. Mean, there's some pretty big lawsuits. Uh, one of them was, I think out of Minnesota and it was around cyber insurance. And so someone fell victim to this. They sued their insurance because they had a high level of coverage for computer intrusion and then a lower level of coverage for social engineering. And the amount they lost was well above that social engineering coverage. And they were trying to articulate why this was a cyber issue because there was a compromise involved. And you know the insurance company's position was no, it was social engineering. Court ruled in the same way. They, you know, they, they, the, these, um, the cyber intrusion was not not covered. And, um, you know, wh- the other thing we see outside of lawsuits is arbitration. And so we see these things go to arbitration. And the same thing happens, which is inevitably the person that sent the money is responsible for being a good fiduciary of these funds. And arbitrators have historically always sided with the, you know, uh, putting the liability on the person that sent it saying, listen, you've got this responsibility to do this, even though this side may have been negligent in their cybersecurity, it's still your job to ensure you're doing this the right way. And so it's always fallen that way. That's just been the the practice we have seen. We tell people like, if you're hitting send, you are default liable unless you can prove otherwise. 
Oh boy. Hope people will listen in there. <laughs> yeah. So that means it's not just about your own cybersecurity, it's about your own practices. Yeah, exactly. Okay. And and so, holding people accountable to them. Yep. We see obviously cyber in like the ransom ransomware and where it's like you just get locked down, right? Like that's a lot yep. of what we see. And then hey, pay me my money if you want your you know access to any of your your company data, right? Or we were gonna we're gonna take the data that you did have and it'll be given out and it's you know personal identifiable information or identifying information. Right. Uh, so that is you know that's the the general big scare like when people think of yeah. Again, social engineering different than like cyber, but like they're running in similar circles. You mm-hmm. had mentioned when we talked earlier that there are just certain regions that you find just more <laughs> ransomware criminals and then social engineering criminals. And you'd mentioned yeah. there's a uh, crossover training, uh, if you will, yeah. and like how how <laughs> their ransomware is like, well, we could do it this way, too. Or and uh, can you talk a little bit about yeah. that? Yeah, so I mean, from from a, I'll start with facts and get into my kind of opinions and reading the tea leaves. Sure. So yes, th- there have been historically kind of geographic regions that have engaged in the ransomware computer intrusion type work, and then the social engineering, you know, business, you know, kind of like wire fraud type type activity, and they tend to be you know very distinct and different operators. And there has been activity where the ransomware intrusion group has been more curious and interested in. How do you do this? What is the activity? What are the tools you're using? What are some of the techniques? Um, and I think that, and so that, that's like kind of the, the factual side of what we have seen. When it gets to like, what, what does this mean? You know, I think there are a couple of things. So first of all, the um, a lot of what saves people today, frankly, has been language barrier. Sometimes you get these and they're pretty oddly written. You're like, this isn't really the way that Will emails. It sounds kind of unusual and it sets off this curious alarm bell. So uh, the the traditional intrusion group has a little bit better grasp of English historically, so that's problem one. Problem two now is with you know generative AI and these Chat GPT tools. It is now trivial to do things like, please generate for me a past due invoice for these materials and this amount with this logo, and it will spit out perfect English, probably better than most people would do in themselves, and looks completely legit. Um, so that is overcoming the language barrier side of things. Uh, the other element of kind of like wh- why is this occurring? Why has there been this cross training? Is uh, so you mentioned this earlier. Uh, reported volume, I think in twenty one, you said it was two point four billion. I think reported the reported volume for twenty two was two point six, and I would not at all be surprised if it's truly double that. Um, that's reported to the FBI. I know of many instances where this crime was never reported for numerous reasons. When you talk to carriers, what's been interesting is that carriers will tell you that wire fraud is larger than or at least equal to ransomware. Um, and so when you talk to say, yeah, it's it's kind of crazy. Everyone talks about ransomware. It's in the news. It's a very big item. But when it comes to the actual losses and frequency of it, wire fraud exceeds it. And I believe that that trend is going to continue for a few reasons. I mean, look, ransomware is here to stay. It's going to continue to be a problem. It's never going to like, you know, don't want to minimize it at all. However, Ransomware, I think, is getting a lot harder to pull off because, number one, the cryptocurrency regulation is starting to, to crack down, right? There's been some cases of, of authorities being able to get money back. Um, two is that it's become such a big, high-profile uh, event. And so if you lock down a pipeline or a hospital, right, it's, it's now becoming this thing where it's in the newspaper, nation states are talking about it. And I think you saw this with, you know, the, the colonial pipeline is kind of the big I think that kind of brought ransomware to the to the stage largely. And what was, I don't know, funny about it in some way is that 
this happened, it made big news. There was no you know, gas on the Eastern seaboard. Big, big problem, right? Putin and Biden are talking about this. The bad guys who are responsible for get on Twitter, they immediately dropped their ransom by like 80%. It was something crazy. And they had this state where it's like, we are just in this for money. Like, I don't want to start a war. We have no political agenda here at all. Um, and so I think when you look at it through that lens of saying, if I lock up the wrong party, I could potentially have like the US military kicking in my door. And I'm just in this for money, right? Largely, these people are not in this for political reasons, activist type reasons. It's just a way to make money. And I want to make the most money with the least amount of headache. And you know, the, st- the story we tend to tell is if Colonial Pipeline was a victim of a wire fraud, there are probably like a dozen people at that firm that would know it happened. They would have paid it and you, no one else would have ever heard of it, right? But because it's ransomware, it became this big thing. So I think that for those folks that are purely in this for financial motivation, they're saying, do I really want to risk having this problem or do I go a simpler route? And so I, I, again, that's kind of reading the tea leaves, but some of what I suspect is happening where we see that cross-training and curiosity about how the business email compromise wire fraud stuff is working. That's so it's scare. It's super scary with the AI aspect of it. I was, I was thinking about this as you're saying it. You, if you had access to somebody's inbox, you'd have so many sent messages where you could literally ask the AI to say, "Sound like this," and here is the yeah. examples, example, 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 example of how they interact, even with that party, like specifically yeah. with that party which would then make it impossible for somebody to, to identify saying that's not what Will sounds like. He actually, Will, the other day yeah. sent an email to another Justin and I was on the yeah. email and it said, hey, Justin, I really want to talk about something. And I'm like, this is, what's this? This is, doesn't make yeah. any sense. And then obviously I noticed, I'm like, ah, this is not for me, Justin. It's for another that's Justin, which made yeah. sense. But initially I was like, oh crap, like what happened? Like what happened to Will's email? Like, oh my God, yeah. no, like this is horrible. <laughs> so it, it does, it, it is scary because once you can start sounding like the people you do business with or, or people, once a hacker can start sounding like that or a right. criminal can start sounding like that, it's like, oh my God, like that, that change, that, that makes yeah. it so much harder to then identify. Yeah. And, you know, there are, you know, what's interesting about this ecosystem and the industrialization of of this crime is that a lot of people tend to think, you know, sophisticated guy with the hoodie in the basement, the dark lights, right? And like this, this like highly trained technical, you know, uh, evil Mark Zuckerberg kind of guy, right? And largely what this is, is like, you don't need really any kind of skill set, like technical skill set at all to commit this crime. So, there is a whole part of this industry that's building tools to enable this kind of activity. And you see this sort of ransomware, right? There's like ransomware as a service providers where you go pay a few bucks and it's like, here is some stuff and you can kind of run your own shop without any, you know, without having to know how to do email compromise, how to lock up accounts. Right. And so we're seeing the same thing with the BEC side where they're providing these kind of, you know, almost like phishing toolkits where it's like you can put in all this information, you can monitor accounts at scale, you can set up some of the activity and build it out to where all you need is internet connection, you know, connect to the dark web in a few dollars and you can run this scam on your own um, without needing to have any of the other skill sets that are necessary to do the compromise and to understand how do I register spoof domains, these other things, it it's, handles it all for you. Hmm. Is it as easy as just training people to solve the problem then? It, it is not. It's certainly a key component of it, right? And so having you know, an awareness and training on this and having policies is there. 
you know, part of my revelation for the business was really that I can say this with, I think, 100% certainty. Every 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 victim I've worked with has had a policy in place and generally had some level of awareness. Like, I don't know about an official training program as much as it, there was no one who was like, I had no idea this could happen. I didn't know I was supposed to verify instructions. No one ever told me. Everyone had it. And that's part of where there's that shame is that, you know, there's, um, hey, we had a policy. Like, why didn't you follow it? What happened? And if we're being honest, people are like, I don't follow that policy 80% of the time. If I did, we'd never get deals done. Or I would do nothing else and I have to make payroll and I have to do this. And right, like it's it's not practical. And so, you know, what we tell folks is that you've got to have the policies in place. You got to have those training, you know, training things in place. We recommend not only the typical, you know, security awareness, phishing type training that is super necessary, but we recommend really specialized training for the finance team around this kind of crime because it's a little bit different than your, you know, don't click links, be, be careful type stuff. And then what we tell folks too is you really need to think about having a system in place. And so uh, a parallel to this, right, is people put phishing training in place all the time and people take it quarterly or yearly and, you know, they fail an exercise and, th- and they get notified. But in addition to that, organizations are also putting in things like, uh, you know, att- attachment scanning, right? Antivirus, sandboxing and things, right? So we basically, you know, call it defense in depth, but we say, look, we want our users to be a line of defense, but we also want to allow for the fact that people make mistakes, people may click a link, people may do something bad, and we want to prevent that there as well. So there's like a technical control behind the training. And that's how you know we view our system. What we recommend is that you've got to have the training and policy in place, but to really support your people and realize nobody is perfect, people are going to make mistakes, bad guys are very sophisticated and tricky. Can we put something in place to support them so that this is going to ensure that this happens? And is, is there a control or a system where we can ensure that these things are occurring? And then our recommendation is like for that to be effective, it needs to be something that fits into the workflow and does not slow you down. Because if it does, you're just not going to use it and you're going to be back where you started. Interesting, especially with uh, the counter, essentially the opposite side of you know countering the social engineering uh it's a reduction in productivity if you do it in the wrong in the wrong fashion right so policy and so mm-hmm. then you've got pol- written policy but it's still being circumvented even yeah. though it's supposed to be doing a good thing so right. exactly this is now really attacking the human element of being human and yep. uh what we call what i like to call the uh, path of least resistance for like sure water. like water <laughs> yeah so let's break down. How does this happen? Like, what's the most common way this happens? Like, let's let's teach some listeners yeah. some stuff today. Like, what should they try to identify in the most common way that this occurs? Sure. Well, we, we talk about it kind of along a spectrum. We sort of made up. So like one to 10, one being very, very unsophisticated, 10 being extremely sophisticated. So to, to kind of give an idea here is that a lot of people, when we first talk about this, many people think, oh, I, I can identify this. And they're thinking, you know, it's like the old Nigerian prince type scam, right? Or we're seeing this thing where it is the mysterious CEO email about, please go buy Apple gift cards. Hey, Justin, it's Will. I'm in an emergency meeting. Please wire this money because some reason, right? And most people think like, I'm going to catch that. That seems really, really weird. Those are still in place because they do work with shocking frequency. However, for the audience here, for most people, what we say is like the sophistication kind of four to seven is where we really need to be worried. And what those look like is 
the bad guy is in someone's email who is involved in a deal. It might be yours. It might be your counterparties. It might be a lawyer or a sub, right? There's a lot of people on these chains typically. They're aware of a transaction that is occurring. So this is a legitimate transaction that everybody intends to pay. And what they're going to do is wait for the right moment. And all they're going to do is switch out the payment instructions on an otherwise legitimate payment. So to give you an example, let's just use an invoice that you're paying. Here is a deal coming up. We're going to close on, you know, we're in construction, right? We got a roof and windows that we're putting in. Here is our vendor. They've got an invoice comes in and typically most people have multiple approvals. So there's some sense of security in that we don't pay anything without seven layers of approval. And where this crime happens and where the, the policies fail is that most of those approvals are built around, do we intend to pay this, right? Is a legitimate payment? Do we have the money? Is it coming out of the right account? Is the accounting done? And typically no one is really asking, hey, we verified that these instructions are actually correct. And so people say, oh, well, by the time it gets to me, I've had three team teammates look at it. Of course, we're good to go, right? Nothing gets to my desk without all these people looking at it and you hit send. And that's that's the really dangerous crime is that everyone intends to pay it. It's a totally legitimate payment, right? And only thing that has changed is these, is these payment instructions. And if you, number one, you know, don't notice that. And number two, don't verify it outside of email, which is where the social engineering element comes in. They, they are going to be able to get you to send that money. Now it is gone. It is almost impossible to recover it after a pretty short amount of time. And it gets back to where we started, which is, no matter what occurred, you are liable because you you hit send and now you've got to find some way to make yourself whole and to and to get the payment out to the the vendor you actually owed money to. And so, you know, as we talk about like the slight variations of sophistication, there are some of these where they're gonna drop that invoice and create some urgency where it's like, just just pay it now. Can I get you to pay it now? And this happens because it's like, yep, we know this vendor, everything's good to go, that project is happening. And particularly in, in you know, the construction space. Like if I don't get paid, we're going to stop work. I'm going to shift this material to another project that's waiting for this, right? So like it's easy to create the urgency where I really want to get this done today. And then you get a little bit more sophisticated where now bad guys are aware of these verbal confirmation procedures that exist. And so they'll do a couple things. One of them is they'll provide a ruse with a different number. So they may take the invoice and just change the number on it. Or they'll say, hey, Ryan, it's Will. We're now a hybrid environment. I'm not at the office anymore. Here's my cell phone. Call me here. And of course, that's going to call the bad guy or his or her representative who is going to verify the fraudulent instructions. You have now executed on your policy. You've made a verbal verification. You've sent it and you've been socially engineered. And then another variant that's, that's very devastating is the bad guys are now sending in the bogus instructions and then proactively calling in on a spoofed caller ID, which is modestly easy to do. And so you're sitting at your desk, invoice drops, phone rings, caller ID says, window vendor, you answer it. Hey, Ryan, it's so-and-so. I work at XYZ company, just sent this stuff in. I know, you know, I want to go ahead and do this verbal confirmation while I got you on the phone. It's urgent. And I know people have a callback thing. So let's go ahead and knock it out. Great. Thanks for saving me a step. You didn't make an outbound call. It was inbound. That was the bad guy calling you. Uh, and so, you know, all of these things is like, that, and this isn't even like on the high end of crazy stuff. We've got like all the AI things, right? But this is pretty middle of the road where there's like a little bit of a determined bad guy, right? It's not the lazy spray and pray method, but they can do that a couple times a day. They're easily taking home a million bucks a month, uh, you know, w without without too much sweat. Man, you know, sometimes I wish I was a bad guy. It seems like the money's be better there. I'm just saying. <laughs> I'm kidding. Uh, yeah. This 
this is a wild because they've they've taken uh, client experience, right? And said like, I know you have to call in verbally. So let me just give you ex- exceptional client experience, you know, in this yeah. deal. And somebody's thrilled because now I don't have to call you. Like this is a yeah. this guy's great. This guy's yeah. amazing. You feel amazing about this party that yeah. is about to steal your money, which is yeah. uh, so unfortunate. Um, it is. Hey everybody, Justin here. Thank you so much for listening to this episode. As you know, Will and I are business nerds and love talking to leaders who've scaled their businesses using people, process, and technology. If that's something that gets you all jazzed up too, then do me a favor and hit the subscribe button. Don't forget to hit the little bell so you get notified every time we drop a sweet new episode. And if you know somebody who'd be an awesome guest on the show, send them our way. Just go to buildandscale.net slash guest. Now, back to the episode. So, all right, so those are common kind of midway. What's the what's the most elaborate, craziest thing? I'm talking like Ocean's Eleven level of heist of money that you've seen. Yeah. So, I mean, the, the, the crazier things get into, you know, like you said, this sort of nascent generative AI type stuff, right? So this is where, uh, you know, some crazy examples are, publicly traded companies, they have earnings calls where the executives are on an earnings call that anybody can go listen to. It's like, we can take that content and now train an AI model to speak that sounds like the executive. And so now they can call in, they can send the email from the executive, which that's off. Again, people want to help. Oh my gosh, it's the boss. I want to make them happy. They've got this special thing they want me to do, urgent need, but I'm kind of worried because it's sort of weird. Now I get a phone call from him or her and it sounds like them. And it's like, hey, I just sent that email. This is important to me. It's like, do it. Uh, the other one we've seen is also with, uh, same thing with video. So you've seen the deep fakes of, you know, I think they had one of Tom Cruise saying weird stuff. So they can create those. That's um, just and then Tom Cruise saying weird yeah. stuff. That's not a- That's, that's true, yeah. <laughs> but, uh, you know, and, and a variant of that is like, they'll, they'll do a deep fake of, of me. And then it's the old, like, I can't get my AV to work, right? Mm-hmm. So it's like, hey, right? So you get an email from the boss and you get a Zoom with them but you don't hear their voice because they didn't or can't spook the voice. Hey, I zoomed with the boss. He just, his, his, his video wasn't working. It happens, right? And so you see those and, and that's where you get into patient bad guys who are trying to go after a, a big win there, right? So they're investing a lot into that deal. They may be in sitting there for a long time evaluating, you know, different deals and they're waiting and, and they're a little bit smarter, more calculating. And so, you know, I have some funny stories about like the dumbest bad guy ever. But, you know, some of them is like, hey, as soon as I've got one on the hook, I'm going to try and exploit it as soon as possible before I get discovered. Others are like, hey, I've got a big one here. Let me sit and wait it out and find that good opportunity to maybe use some of these more advanced techniques to really score a home run. Yeah, because obviously if you're using higher end technologies, like you know, spoofing somebody's voice or, you know, deep faking voice or video, that's got you got to have a bigger payout. Right. Like that's yeah. the thing. Like I'm not doing that for like a few thousand dollars. Like that's just that no. doesn't make any sense. But you yeah, know, a few million dollars. I, you yeah, know, I'm, I'm willing to invest the time and energy. Yeah. Um, so, wow, that's um, it's wild to think. How, I guess, in your opinion, like how do how do we prevent that type of social engineering? Like, how, like if I can get on a video chat and it yeah. sounds like the CEO and it looks like the CEO, how yeah. do I, as the employee, not do what they ask? Yeah. Well, I mean, look, you know, the, 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 there is no secret to really solving this crime, right? Everybody knows what to do. It's probably in your policy. It is, 
do a verbal verification at a known good number, right? And so the idea is like, take it out of email, take it out of like tech, right? Because like, again, I could spoof a Zoom, like these things are hard to do. It is very, very, very hard to steal Will's phone number in such a way that when I call it, it calls a bad guy, right? Happy to get into like the technical way of like how this can sometimes happen, what they do. Generally, it doesn't work for this kind of crime because everyone's on their phone so much that if I were to successfully steal Will's number, he's probably going to pick up on it within 30 minutes because he's like, what the heck? He looks at his phone all day, like everybody, right? So the ability for him to do that is 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 almost zero. And should it happen, you are now in the category of sophisticated tech intrusion where insurance has a different look on it, right? Mm-hmm. Um, so it's pretty old school, which is you've got to verify this, what they call out-of-band communication, which is typically a phone call. And it's got to make sure that it's calling a known good number you've talked to them on before. And it sounds so easy. It is so easy. Doing it at scale in practice, it is very, very hard. Uh, and so that's that's the hard part is like, make that easy. And, you know, part of what our system does, we try to tell people with is risk scoring it, right? And so you've got a lot of transactions going through. It is very hard to say, do this ironclad process every time, make sure it happens and hold your capital to it is that practically this is now going to slow things down or we're gonna have to grow headcount a lot. So if you've got 10 transactions going through, you know, in practice, eight of them are like perfectly normal, everything is safe, you should know that. And you should be able to identify the one or two that it is something kind of weird here or something is really weird here. And most of you know our risk our risk system and the rules we, we have are built based on all of that experience where generally those kind of middle of the road, you know, say middle, middle sophistication crimes have some of the same hallmarks roughly, which are after the fact, the person's going, God, it was so weird. I don't know why spot migration changed their account information. We've been paying them forever, but it happens. And I was like, and then I got this email from Will. And like, now that I look at it, it seems kind of weird. Like it, it's simply how he talked, but like, it wasn't that unusual. Right. And then like, he had a different number, but I mean, people work remote. Right. So like, that's why the people feel foolish. It's like, you go, hold on a second. The account changed and the email was weird and his phone number changed. Like you didn't stop. And, and they're like, I, I didn't, I don't know why. And so those things are how we built our engine where all of a sudden that's going to be very obvious. Like, Hey, there's something really unusual here. This is out of the ordinary spend a little bit more time. And that's where we you know, get into how do you make this practical is that doing this takes time. There's no way around that, right? You've got to verify these things. There is no shortcut to saying, here's the magic button where everything is safe. What we want is spend as little time as possible. And the time that you are spending, spend it wisely. So spend on those transactions that are risky. The problem is people are generally not very good at identifying those risky situations because of all the reasons we talked about before. So let the machine help them identify those so that they can do what they're good at, which is, all right, now go uncover what's going on. Hmm. So I've definitely heard of situations like what you described kind of across the board. Uh, So now we're educated a little bit better on what it means, low level versus high level uh, sophistication. So in the realm of making things easy, right? Uh, we talked a little bit about something called FedNow. Uh, do you want to talk about what FedNow is? Uh, when it's sort of coming out? Why is it coming out? Yeah. Right? And then what the issues are? Sure. So FedNow, I think, is launching end of this summer or maybe early fall. So it's from you know Federal Reserve, and it is you know a think of it as like a faster ACH. So it's the ability to you know close and resolve larger payments more quickly. And so it's their answer to like roughly instantaneous payments, which is very convenient because 
businesses need this, right? Cash flow reasons and, and settlement for I'm not going to deliver this until I know the money is here, right? ACH and checks have a delay. There can be NSF. So this is their answer to solving that business problem, which is great. However, introduces some fraud issues. And I think to explain that, I kind of need to go into what a money mule is and how this crime is perpetuated. So yeah, let's do it. Yeah. As a victim, you pretty much never pay the bad guy. The bad guy is almost always overseas. And the reason is number one, it makes the bad guy very easy to identify. Number two, for most the victims, particularly in the US, uh, typically you're not doing a lot of international payments. Some people are, but it probably sets off alarm bells for you and for your bank when all of a sudden you're like, I'm paying spot migration and they're now in Hong Kong. That seems weird, right? So they will recruit what is called a money mule. And this person is a US-based domestic person. They are, you know, uh, they've got a longstanding relationship with a bank. So they've got an account that's been there for a while. So in terms of like the typical kind of fraud checked, they call it uh, KYC AML, right? Like know your customer and anti-money laundering. Those people are legit. There's nothing, there's nothing wrong with their bank account. There's nothing wrong with them. They are recruited a couple different ways. It's either a work from home, you know, link, hey, earn 10,000 bucks a month working from home. I did too. Uh, and then commonly, it's also a romance scam. So a lot of these, it's like, I met my boyfriend slash girlfriend online, and they have this business that they want me to help them with. And in either event, the scam works as follows. There's a hook, right? So now we've got a potential victim hooked in. We've got you know the email. We know the deal is coming up. I need to put in some instructions that are, instead of going to the intended recipient are going to be directed to, to me. I'm going to put in the Money Mule's account. So I find the Money Mule. They're very good. They may even find a money mule at the same bank. So if your actual vendor is at JP Morgan, hey, can I get a mule at JP Morgan? So it seems a little bit less unusual. And the scam is, hey, money mule, I'm getting ready to do this business deal with you. I'm going to put whatever it is, half a million dollars into your account. You keep five grand for yourself. And then you either wire the rest to me overseas. You put it into a crypto exchange and send it to this wallet address. Uh, sometimes they'll actually shard it to multiple other money mules to make it harder to track. And this is where the Fed now thing comes in, is that the idea is to get it out of that mule account and disperse as quickly as possible because it makes it so hard to get it back. And with a system like Fed now, uh, it's going to make that harder because now you've got that instantaneous clearing ability for the mule to take that money and now disperse it out much more quickly. Whereas historically, if we can find out about the crime fast enough, we have a shot. It's typically about 24 hours we have a shot at getting that money back to you as the victim. Beyond that, it's very, very hard. And with FedNow, NSA's going to make it much harder because you go, the, the money mule is always so easy to identify. It's like you go and say, I sent the money here. Here's the bank account. The bank knows who they are, right? There is there is no there's no question as to what happened here, but they don't have the funds because they've, they've dispersed them. And then that person is not chargeable with the crime because they are truly not involved in the social engineering tricking aspect of it. They're, you know, effectively duped. And so they thought, oh, I thought I had this job. I thought I was helping out my boyfriend that I met online. And, you know, you say, well, that sounds silly. And I can't believe people fall for it. Uh, they, they do. And again, like they are not, they can't really be charged. They, they haven't committed a crime. They're not aware of that. And so it's a frustrating experience. But yeah, the, the Fed now uh, system will enable them to get that money out much more quickly, which is going to make it that much harder to try and recover any of the funds when this happens. I'm just, I'm, I'm, for me, I'm like, man, but you were part of this crime. You should know better. You can't just make 10 grand. That's not yeah. how things work. This is like, <clears throat> what are we talking about right now? To me, yeah. it seems crazy because now I'm like, 
I should be a money mule. What am I talking? What am I doing? I could be yeah. a money mule. That seems like an easy job. And if I'm not, criminal, yeah. you know, like that yeah. to me just seems like not correct. Like you should, like there should be consequences. Yeah. But I guess if you're duped, it's, yeah. Uh, and it's and look, I mean, you know, and, and as a victim, right? It's like, okay, so let's assume that we now pass the laws. Like, sell so the money mules in jail. I mean, I guess I feel better, but I'm still out the money, right? Because that's the key is they don't have assets. They don't have the money anymore. So what you really want is like, give me my money back. And it's not like, hey, I took it and bought a house. It's like, I just sent it to somebody else. I only got five grand out of this deal. Do they right? got to give so, up the five grand or they keep it? I think they spend it. I mean, they probably have to give it up. Yeah. Uh, there, there are some funny, I mean, I'll, I'll share one funny money mule story we, we had. It's a, it's a client we work with. They were a victim of this of this crime, paid a vendor, and I, it was definitely a couple million bucks. I think it was like two two payments, big big vendor. Um, happened over I think a thirty or forty five day period. They didn't identify it. The vendor calls them I think sixty days later and says like, "Hey, when are you going to pay your bills?" And they're like, "We've been paying them. What are you talking about? We sent whatever it was two million bucks. We never got it. What happened? Go back." And they got the money back. And I told them this never never happens. And this is kind of some speculation, but send the money to this money mule. I think that the mule is, you know, some college kid, young kid is like, Oh, I got this job. 10 grand from him. Sounds pretty good. You know, I don't have to work that much and goes to the ATM one day to take out beer money. And like, there's just this string of zeros in their bank account. And they're like, I don't know what this is, but it doesn't feel right. And I think they're like, drop card, break phone, like just kind of go away. Right. And so I suspect that the actual criminal is like, you know, hounding this guy like dude where's the get it out get it out get it out get it out and basically mule didn't move it and so when they finally discovered this crime almost two months later fortunately the the mule account was just like didn't touch it. it was just like i don't know what happened but i don't want to be involved anymore and they're able to get it back and so like listen this never happens <laughs> like do not do not count on this uh you dodged a huge bullet here because i think the mule's like this number is so big and like this is obviously something is wrong <laughs> that usually wow. doesn't happen yeah. Wow. Good for that guy or gal yeah. that like was right. totally like, hey, I just was trying to get beer money and this is this got way out of hand and yeah. I, I don't want any part of this. So I should not have four million dollars in my checking account. Yeah. At the same time, they should have just, you know, you know, it's like Monopoly. Yeah, the bank error in your favor. Like, that's just yours now. <laughs> Except that's not true. The bank is gonna take their money back. No, yeah, <laughs> yeah. It's not Monopoly. <laughs> awesome. So software so your so your software what what is it what is it what does it do like expl explain what it's actually doing yeah so a, a simple way to put it is think workflow automation for the finance team for the back office so we essentially codify in software the policy that you have today so here's your policy that says for any new instruction or change instruction we're going to verbally verify with a good number and it's going to go through this approval chain we build that into our system so that as the, as the people that are actually responsible for doing the verifications and doing the validations, they have a system that tracks their activity. So number one, the team can hold each other accountable. So it's like, hey, you know, if, if Justin and Ryan, you and I are, you know, work together on these deals, there's an element of sort of forced bureaucracy where it's like, we're going to check each other's work. And it's not because I don't trust you, but it's the element of like, hey, man, it's Friday and the boss needs this thing. We got to hurry up. And Justin's going like, Dude, that's not how we do things. Like, hold on, we've got to verify this, right? And and there's transparency. So the other part we see is on that approval, when it gets to the CFO and he's like, ah, 10 people have looked at this, it's good to go, right? 
they are typically looking at, is this good to go? They're looking at the same email that the first person did, or they're looking at some spreadsheet that somebody put together all along the line. And we produce an artifact that gives an, an, an audit trail. So they not only know, is this the right account? Is the amount correct? But they can see, did we make a verification call? What was discussed? Who did we call? And and so you know, the last part of all of this is then we talk about the risk engine, right? So doing this at, at scale and at the speed of business is going to require you to you know, move kind of quickly. And so with our rules engine, we identify those things that look risky so that typically what we find when, when, you know, when we've caught these with our actual customers is that it doesn't get to that CFO level. It's being caught at the first level. They're going, hold on a second. This is weird. This is weird. This phone doesn't look right. It's not even getting to that stage to where, you know, it's not even getting to the approval stage, but the risk engine is what really helps not only say, are you following the process, but helps on how quickly can we move or do I need to slow down and check on these things? Because again, the patterns we've seen, the 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 indicators of a fraud are pretty typical and we've built them in such a way that it's like, okay, this looks like something where you're going to want to slow down and do some double checking, call back, whatever it might be, right? As part of our training as well. So that that's that's the primary software part, as we say, is you know, you've got to have the policy and we occasionally help people with their policy. That's not our core business. Um, we say training is very critical and we have a training module that is exclusively on the wire fraud component, right? So it's 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 different from the typical social engineering stuff. And then we say those two things are necessary, but people have those and still fall victim. You've got to have a system of guardrails to ensure that those things happen. And you know, you can build your own, you can devise your you can devise your own system, but we say like, hey, we're pretty easy and pretty expensive to deploy. And now you've got a basically ironclad audit trail, knowing that we've done the right steps and it also is not slowing my business down. Oh, that makes tons of sense. Uh, policy is only as good as uh, how well yeah. it's used. So yeah, so in our, so like, you know, you're calling through our system, right? So the calls will be transcribed. We're doing some some phone number checks and things like that. So it makes it very easy to, to execute this process as the person doing it. Um, but you you get that approval audit trail to where, you know, what we tell people is like, if you are, if you're looking for an efficiency gain, there may be a little bit, but it's not a ton here, right? It's like, you still have to go through this process. But what we are doing is at least at a bigger scale, it's going to make you more efficient because you're going to be spending your time on those riskiest transactions. Okay. And you just need one bad one to 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 ruin all the profit, right? Yeah. Like, like that's... One of the one of the frauds we caught, uh, it was probably uh, March this year. The amount that was going to go out, I mean, I think it paid for our software for the next eight, ten years, something like that. Like it was just, you know, it was, it was a high six figure uh, vendor payment, and um, you know, they definitely would have sent it, but for our system, like it was a pretty good, pretty good uh, crime. Um, but you know, because of our risk engine, some other things, it was very clear to them that there was something amiss. So those feel good. We're like, all right, this definitely paid for itself quickly. So. Right, That's you better be hear. careful. They're going to start targeting you because you're uh, saving. You're taking money out of these uh, criminals. Yeah, I know. I have to be there. careful. Hope, hope they don't watch the podcast. <laughs> so, think. Uh, I think we're at that time where we got to ask our last question. Okay. So, uh, it's so one that we ask everyone. Uh, if you could go back in time twenty years, what would you tell yourself? Two thousand three. Okay. Old school it is 2003. Out. It is 2003. So I am just now graduating college. What do I tell myself? You know, I think 
this is like the question, like, do, do you have any regrets? You know, like, I, I, I'm happy where I am. So I don't think I would have changed anything on the, on the, in the event that it changes the outcome here. You know, I will say that I think I wish I had jumped into the cyber thing a little bit earlier as an agent. You know, I think I really enjoyed the organized crime thing, but I think that there was a, this, this element of like really grew into, I think something that suited me well, which is the combination of like the pure investigative law enforcement side with, with, with the technical chops. And I think too that, you know, we shared earlier, but interesting about the the Bureau when I, when I was there is at the time, um, I don't think cyber was as, as cool as it is today. And so I was kind of early in the stage of like, this is a emerging threat that Bureau needs to get a hold of. And I think there's some interesting parallels coming from the organized crime side, how bad organized crime was in the, you know, 50s, 60s in the United States. Uh, the, 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 those guys were winning, like they were winning in, in America. And there was a lot of things that had to change in terms of like the RICO statute was passed, right? There were some, some laws passed. And then the FBI as an agency also had to adjust to accommodate this new threat, right? And so that's where things like Title Three wiretaps came from. Um, some of the first undercover assignments were, were done in this case, right? So the Bureau had to change their tactics. And I felt like when I was at the Bureau working cybercrime, we're at this similar inflection point where the tactics of old in the bureau were not keeping pace with the bad guys that we were facing. Um, and I think we've seen some of it. And it's like, I feel like, could I have been a part of, of hastening those change and making those things happen where some of it is the law, right? And, and like, we got to change some of the laws and how we operate, but some of it is the investigative techniques of, you know, I mean, a, a simple example of this is, you know, bureau cases are built on jurisdiction, right? So it's like, if a bank is robbed in this city, then this office is responsible for it. Well, cyber is very different, right? And so at the time that I was in the Bureau, uh, it, it was not the same. Now they've updated it to where like, there's kind of more of a centralized component because um, you realize that it's very hard to establish jurisdiction when it's an IP address and you can kind of be anywhere and very hard to establish jurisdiction like that. So I think there there is some element of being involved earlier and being involved a little more practically and that would have been pretty rewarding. But, you know, by and large, I think my advice would be stick it out, you know, and that you, um, I think you don't realize when you're, grinding out in relative obscurity and whatever you're doing, that it all pays off, right? And so, you know, sitting there interviewing cooperating witnesses on organized crime cases, sometimes you're like, what am I doing here? But like, this is all leading to something bigger, right? And the skills you're learning here and the the challenges and difficult jobs and everything else lead into unique experiences that build you in, in, into who you are. So I think it's been really useful for, for me. This is my first entrepreneurial endeavor, taking all those skill sets and all those experiences. Like, I'm really glad I did it now. And I honestly admire like the young entrepreneur, like 20 something year old kid is like, that's pretty impressive because like the life experience I've had has really built a lot of how I've had to treat my business. I can't imagine doing this first time like straight out of college, my worldview is so different. So um, I've been very glad to have those experiences. That's great. That's a great answer. I love that. Yes. I will put all of your social links and everything into the show notes. Um, If people wanted to get a hold of you, Ryan, what's the best way they can do that? Uh, yeah, e- email and, and through our website. So ryan at conduitsecurity.com or find us at just uh, conduitsecurity.com. Easy to get in touch with from there. Awesome, awesome, awesome. Is there anything else you'd like to tell people before we sign off? Be careful on wiring. Know when you're approving these things, you want to not only approve, do I intend to pay it? Is this the right amount? But you're going to want to ensure that those instructions have been verified through whatever your policy or process is. But super, super critical to think about that when these payments are getting paid and money is going out. All right. Awesome. Well, uh, I enjoyed the conversation. I hope all of our listeners did too. And until next time, 
Adios. Thanks, guys. Thanks for listening to Building Scale. To help us reach even more people, please share this episode with a friend, a colleague, or on social media. Remember, the three pillars of scaling a business are people, process, and technology. And our mission is to help the AEC industry protect itself by making technology easy. So if you think your company's technology pillar could use some improvement, book a call with us to see how we can help maximize your IT cybersecurity strategy. Just go to buildingscale.net slash help. And until next time, keep keep building building scale. scale.